Family Shame from the sermon series, The Soul of Shame, spoken by Pastor Peter on. Merry Christmas, Metro. Merry Christmas to you, to everyone watching online, to those in the gym sanctuary, and to all the parents in the nursery, and to your children. We just want to wish you a happy and a merry, merry Christmas. Uh, So several weeks ago, we launched this series called The Soul of Shame, and some of us probably wondered why would we do something like that. And uh, a new survey just came out this week by LendingTree, and uh, it's actually higher. I reported to you about three weeks ago that 45% of Americans actually say that they dread the Christmas season, this holiday season. Well, LendingTree did a survey in 2019, just just recently, just came out last week, and they say 61% of Americans dread the Christmas season, 61. That means there's more Americans that actually despise this time than actually embrace it and consider it to be a merry time in their lives. That's just the reality in which you and I live in today. And their survey concludes, they go a little bit deeper about why that's the case. One of the major reasons why is because we are spending money on gifts we cannot afford. And as a result of it, we go into this incredible debt and we go into the new year struggling with anxiety and stress of trying to figure out how in the world are we going to pay off our credit card debts. It's one of the major reasons why 61% of Americans actually conclude that this is such a dreadful time of the year. I was perplexed and amazed by that statistic. The other reason what they conclude also is that it's really a time where we're reminded of how little we have to be thankful for. It's a time where we realize how little we have in life because it's a reminder of how dysfunctional our families are, that our family shame has oftentimes claimed and hijacked so much of the joy that prevents us from living into today. And so as a result of it, many Americans today, more Americans than not, conclude that this is a time, it's a season in their lives where they actually dread it. And if that's the case, then I do think that maybe 61% of us here in this room would probably contend that this is not a holiday where they actually feel encouraged, but it actually is a time where they feel discouraged. Our family shame, uh, whether you like to believe this or not, if it's not dealt with, what will happen over time is that it will mutate and eventually will become a curse in our life. That's what happens. When you look at it biblically, we see it happen, especially with the first family, right? With uh, Abraham and with Sarah. Uh, Abraham had two sons. Who did he favor the most? The one that came from Sarah, right? Not from Hagar. It wasn't Ishmael. It was Isaac, That favoritism was a family shame that Ishmael felt. And when we see that, what happens because it wasn't dealt with properly, we see that it begins to mutate, doesn't it? Because when Isaac then gives birth to his kids, uh, Jacob and and his kids, we find uh, in Esau that there is favoritism there and the blessings came. And then when it wasn't dealt with there, what happens? It mutates even more, even more so to a deeper form of favoritism that destroys the life of Joseph, the 12 sons, right? The 12 tribes of Israel comes from them. The brothers decide to kill him, but they end up selling him off to slavery. Also, we find that um, Jacob's marriage is dysfunctional because he had multiple wives and he favored Rachel over Leah. We see it happening, it mutates, and that's why family shame is probably one of the the, the most powerful, the most destructive shame that you and I can experience because you and I first felt shame from our families of origin. Our parents made us feel that way. Our siblings might have made us feel that way. Every family is dysfunctional. So breathe a sigh of relief. (laughs) You're not alone. 
every family is dysfunctional. Some families are more dysfunctional than others, but every family at one point, as you grew up in your family's home, your parents, your siblings, maybe your uncles, your grandparents made you feel like you were lesser than. They made you feel like you were not enough. They made you feel like there was something wrong with you, that you were a mistake. Some of you grew up in homes where performance was such an important part for you to experience any kind of acceptance or affection from your parents. They wanted you to perform at school. They wanted you to perform at your, uh, at, at, uh, your sporting events or at your sports. It was all about performance-based, and whenever you did well, they accepted you, but when you did not do well, it was tough. It was really, really tough. And so you live your life in such a way where you're trying to deal with this performance aspect and you believe you got to perform at every area of life, even performing for your friends. How dreadful is that? If you have a life where you have to perform for your friends, for your spouse, and shame, family shame that's not dealt with will always, always fall into our relationship with our spouse and our children. Maybe you grew up in a home where you were neglected. Maybe you came from immigrant families and you have this tremendous ability to understand and say, it's okay, my parents were never home, but they had to work to survive and that's great. Your parents did the best they could with what they have. But deep down inside, you feel neglected, no matter what. Because you knew at the end, your family chose, your parents chose work over you. They never attended any one of your sporting events or anything like that. They were never there and available for you. Or maybe you came from a family where you felt like your parents played favorites to your brother or your sister and you felt neglected as a result of that. That family shame does something deep within you and if you don't deal with it, it becomes a curse and it mutates into a curse and it's so difficult to break a curse. Some of us, we grew up in homes where abuse was prevalent. You grew up in a home where physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional, verbal abuse, was a normal part of your everyday life growing up in your family. Anger was rampant in your home. And as a result of it, you actually feel like there's something wrong with you or that you deserved it because maybe there's something wrong with you. And if we don't deal with that family shame, it will mutate into a curse and destroy all the most important relationships in our life. And some of you grew up where your parents told you that you were a mistake. They wished they had a son, not a daughter. They wished they had a daughter, not a son. And you grow up in life believing that you are a mistake because your parents never wanted you. You didn't have a place when you enter into this world. And it's a deep, deep, painful reality that you still live with today. When I was uh, uh, living in California for a few years, I was part of a very large church and there was tons of pastors on our staff, but there was one particular pastor, he had three sons. He wanted a girl so bad. He wanted daddy's little girl. And so he begged his wife for, could we go for number four? There's no way we're gonna have four boys. God's not gonna do that to us. So he convinced her, she said yes. They got pregnant, they didn't find out the sex of the baby. And then he told all of us to pray and fast. He prayed and fast a lot. And he told us to pray and fast. And I said, I would not fast for you, but I'll pray for you. <laughs> I'm not gonna fast, all right, come on. That's, you know, there's more important things to be fasting for than just that. But for him, it was everything. And uh, he decided uh, to wait. And when it was time to have the baby, it was another boy. And uh, what he did next was really painful because he left the hospital, he got in his car, he went to a prayer mountain and he prayed, a, a retreat center, and he prayed for days and lamented and cried and said, God, why did you give me another boy? You don't think that's gonna mess up his fourth son? 
growing up in life knowing that he was a mistake, that dad wanted a girl, but yet a boy came out? You don't think that's going to mess him up in how he sees himself? Folks, if you and I don't deal with family shame, the shame that we grew up in our families, you know, our family was the place where we were supposed to build our emotional support system. Our families were supposed to help us to deal with some of the complexities of our emotions. But for the majority of us, we grew up in families because of its dysfunction, where it destroyed every emotional support system that was available to us. And so as a result, Robert Karen gives a beautiful definition of what shame is. It's not beautiful, but it's a real definition of shame. He says, shame is the pathological belief that one is at the core a deformed being, fundamentally unlovable and unworthy of membership in the human community. It is a self regarding the self with a withering and unforgiving eye of contempt. That's what shame is. And so what doctors say, what psychiatrists say is that there is no other emotion that the brain can experience that literally shuts down the right side of the brain where all the emotions live, where it shuts down communication from the right side of the brain from communicating with the left side. And so as a result, a healthy brain is when both sides are communicating constantly, but an unhealthy brain is when they stop communicating with each other and it leads to mental illness. Doctors say there's no other shame out there and, and, and there's no other emotion that humans can experience that would shut down the communication process between the left and the right brain than this emotion of shame. And we all have it and a lot of it, most of it came from our families. And so how do we deal with it? How do we deal with that? How do we overcome our family shame? Because our family shame is so big that even our parents said, hey, you know what? You better never, ever, ever share what happened to our family. And we live with this deep shame today. Some of you, it wasn't that your parents told you not to share or your relatives, but something happened to you that was so bad that there probably isn't a person in this world that even knows about what happened to you. And if we're not willing to deal with this and overcome it, it will overtake us and destroy every area of our lives. The Christmas story is a story of shame. And we're gonna look at Jesus' parents. And today they're gonna teach us on this Christmas Sunday, how we can overcome our shame. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter one. We'll look at verses 18 to 25. And then we're gonna look at Luke chapter one, verses 26 to 30. We need to look at Joseph's story and then Mary's story. And then we're gonna combine that and, and figure out how we're gonna be able to overcome our shame. Here's what it says in Matthew one. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the, through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Could you just imagine what Joseph's friends were saying? Your wife committed adultery on you. What is he supposed to say? No, 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 that's the Holy Spirit did that. Could you imagine if your friend said that to you? You would take him to like an exorcist and deal with that. The amount of shame that Joseph 
had to deal with as a result of this. Incredible, incredible. Let's look at Mary, even worse for her. Verse 26 of Luke chapter one. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Underline that, greeting. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Ladies, if this ever happened to you, would you respond like this in verse 38? I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may your words to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. So God, we come to you today on this beautiful Christmas Sunday and we look at the Christmas story and Lord, these two young people had to overcome their family shame. Would you teach us how we can do that with ours? That it no longer will be to us a curse, but rather you can transform it and redeem it and breathe life into it. So God, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, God, I pray that would be indeed pleasing unto you. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Give me a little background to this before uh, we get started on the service, on the sermon. Uh, Joseph and Mary were probably in the ages of around 12 years old, all right? Uh, scholars say Mary was definitely 12. Joseph could have been maybe a year or two older than Mary. And uh, I know we have a lot of high school and junior high kids in this service here today. I do not want you to go to your parents today and say that you want to get married. No, 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 no. You were not around 2,000 years ago. You cannot use that as an excuse, all right? You were not allowed to get married at your young age yet. You need your parents' approval, all right? But they were 12 years old. That was a normal thing back in the first century. Uh, 12-year-olds were betrothed to get married, and that's exactly what happened. Joseph and Mary were betrothed to get married. Now, the betrothal period is kind of like the engagement period of our day today, but it's much deeper than that. When you were betrothed to be married to somebody, you actually were legally married to them. You didn't live in the same house as them. You did not start your marriage together yet. You lived separately for about a year. And as a result of that, that was a time where you were to continue to nurture your relation with one another and also with God. It was a beautiful period. It, but it was still a legally binding marriage. And so when Joseph and Mary were betrothed to get married, they were legally married. The only way you can annul the betrothal, prop, the, the betrothal period of a marriage is through divorce. You actually had to file for a legal divorce in order to end or annul the marriage. And so they were deeply married. And when Mary was pre pregnant with Jesus and Joseph found out about it, she was probably about four months pregnant. And Joseph was of course, overwhelmed. Do you remember when you were engaged, guys? If your fiance was pregnant and she was showing a little bump, how would you take that? Oh man, all hell break loose in my house. I'm sure it would as yours. But Joseph, being a very compassionate and a man of character, didn't wanna publicly do this. 
because if he did, I talked to you about this last week, her, she could have been stoned to death because in the, in the Mosaic laws, it says to stone those who commit adultery. He could have been, she could have been stoned to death, but the Roman government really took that capital punishment away from the Sanhedrin council. So um, they probably wouldn't do that, but they might, they might. But worst of all, she would have been publicly humiliated. And back in the first century, it's hard enough for, I believe, women to have children out of wedlock. But in the first century, if a woman had a child out of wedlock, it was almost a death sentence. The, the, the chances of her surviving is probably dismal at best. And so quietly, he wanted to divorce her in the midst of all this. He believed Mary cheated on her. It was a shame and a betrayal that he experienced at a deep level, and he was going to do it still in a very, I believe, a God-honoring way, God-honoring way. And in this story, we learn from Joseph's story and from Mary how you and I can begin to overcome our family shame. The first thing in how we overcome our family shame is by listening when God speaks to us. If you and I want to overcome our family shame, we have to be willing to listen when God speaks to us. Metro, hear me on this. Hear me on this. God speaks to us every single day. But we have to be willing to listen to him. Some of us have, hasn't developed the aptitude to be able to listen to the voice of God. He speaks to us every day. But we have to be willing to be able to hear him. Matthew chapter 1 verse 20, it says here, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. If it wasn't for the voice of God, Joseph would have divorced Mary. Him being able to listen to God made all the difference in the world, and let me just tell you this, it made all the difference in dealing with the shame. Luke chapter one, verses 28 to 33. The angel went to her and said, greetings you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will not conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary is blown away because she's greeted by the angel. How many of you have been ever greeted by an angel? Do you know that still happens today? How many of you have heard from God in a dream? Do you know that still happens today? Sometimes you read this stuff, you're thinking, ah, that was 2,000 years ago. Yes, it was 2,000 years ago, but you need to understand the spirit is still alive. I don't know about you, but I do believe this Holy Spirit is still alive. Amen? Amen. And because he's still alive, one great truth about this Christmas Sunday is that he still speaks to us, and he can speak to us in a very supernatural way. But for Mary, it was very different. Mary was blown away by this greeting because this greeting wasn't a typical greeting. Mary knew her Bible, and I'm going to talk about this just a little bit later, but this greeting was given only to three people in the Old Testament. Mary knew her scripture. This was the greeting that was given to Abraham, to Moses, and Gideon. It was a greeting, and when you, look, when you look at this passage in the Hebrew, where it was a greeting where God only gave to people where he was going to use them to bring salvation to his people. And so this 12-year-old little girl is blown away that an angel, because she knew what that greeting meant, she was terrified. If God said to you, I'm going to use you to save the world, wouldn't you be terrified? Now picture being a 12-year-old girl. Intensifies it, doesn't it? 
Listen, at the end of the day, no human will and determination will ever allow you, can ever create an ability for you to overcome your family shame. I don't care how determined you are. I don't care how much will you have, how much of a desire you have to overcome your, your family shame. You can't do it without God. It's impossible. You can try, many of us have tried. You know what we usually do to try to overcome our family shame? We become more successful. Some of you have become very successful. And the reason why you've done that is because you're trying to silence the voices in your head where your parents have told you you're a failure. You're nothing. You're never going to amount to anything. Or somebody said that to you growing up and you feel that and you're trying to be successful to silence those voices. It's a dangerous, destructive pattern of living. You cannot overcome your shame unless you actually put yourself in a position to hear from God. When you hear God's voice, he still speaks to us. When you hear God's voice, it will begin to silence the voices of the family shame that you grew up with. If you don't, you will be in a very dark place. And so we have to sort of create a plan. We got to be strategic about this and creating a plan so that we can put ourselves in a place where we can listen to God. I guarantee you today, if God spoke to you, if you heard God's voice today, it would change your life. But that can happen on a daily occurrence, but you got to create a plan for it, all right? So how do we sort of put ourselves in a place where we can listen to God? David Hosang, help me with this. We call this the three S's, the three S's, all right? The first thing, if you want to hear from God, if you want to be able to listen to the voice of God, you got to practice Sabbath every week, observing a Sabbath. Sabbath isn't you just taking a day off and doing nothing. That's not what it is. Some of you think it's just resting all day. It can be that if you're really tired. But Sabbath is you centering your day, one day a week, for 24 hours, where you don't focus on your full-time vocation, whatever that might be. And what I love to do on my Sabbath is I, I, I do my best every time I'm on Sabbath to turn my phone off. Because I tell you what, that phone will never allow you to enjoy a Sabbath. Because there's so many different distractions that are there. But you got to be willing to take a day where you're saying, how can I sort of plan this day where I can rest in God so that God can minister to me? And if you don't take a Sabbath every week, the Bible makes it very clear that you are committing a sin weekly. And so if you want to get to a place where you can hear from God, you have to learn to live in a weekly Sabbath. It's the only way and how we can overcome our family shame. Shabbat is a very important thing. Trust me, Mary and Joseph practice that Sabbath every, every week. The next thing is silence and solitude. What is solitude? Meaning nobody's around you. It's just you and God alone. That's it, silence. I really fear for the young generation. I know a lot of you are here today, you young kids. You know why I call you? I call you guys the AirPod generation. You guys walk around with that white little thing hanging out of your ear everywhere you go. And I fear, because my kids as well, because I fear that you don't know how to deal with silence. And the moment you hear silence, you put music and noise on so that the music and the noise can get you to believe that you don't need to center yourself and hear from God. I think it's one of the greatest plots of the enemy, that he's raising up a young generation where they feel like they can walk around 24-7 listening to music so they don't hear the voice of God. Listen, Dallas Willard says this, if you don't embrace silence and solitude, you're not gonna hear from God. And when you hear the voice of God, it does everything, it has everything to do with helping you to overcome your family shame because so much of us find our identity in that. But when we hear the voice of God, you know what we begin to realize? 
that we are children of God, that you don't just believe it here, but you believe it here because God speaks to you. If you hear God's voice, it's one of the greatest ways in how you and I believe that we are children of God because God wouldn't speak to his children. Of course he would. He would always speak to his children. So we have to put ourselves in that place of silence and solitude. So can I encourage you for five minutes before you have to wake up, just be silent. But you gotta find like an anchor word to kind of keep you grounded because our mind will wander. And it's okay if your mind wanders. Don't be so hard on yourself if your mind begins to wander a little bit. It's all right. Just find that anchor word that'll get you back on Jesus. It could just be the word Jesus. It could be Abba, I belong to you. It could be in your, in your mother tongue. You can say it. Whatever keeps you grounded in Jesus Christ, make sure you say that word because your mind will, will wander. And then five minutes before you go to sleep, spend five minutes of silence before you go to bed. We have to learn as human beings, if you ever want to be effective, especially with God, you have to learn to embrace boredom with silence. If we don't, you're not going to hear from God. If you can get and you start doing it well five minutes before you wake up, five minutes before you go to bed, can I encourage you maybe once a week during your Sabbath, spend anywhere between 30 minutes to one hour in complete silence. My hope and prayer is that your prayer life would be silent that you wouldn't just list things and ask God for certain things, because God already knows. But when your prayer life is silenced, you know what's happening? You're hearing from God. God's speaking to you. And when God speaks to you, you know it affirms your identity in being a child of God, because God speaks only to his children. Put yourself in that place. If you want to deal with your family's sins and overcome them, your family's shame, it's going to require you to plan, create this plan of Sabbath, silence. And then the last is scripture. Scripture, you and I have to learn to read the Bible, not just for knowledge. A lot of us, we do that, right? Our pastors in the past have said, read it, you need to know what's going on. And then, you know, in youth group, you have Bible trivia. And if you don't know the Bible, you hate playing Bible trivia because you're like, oh man, I'm not gonna be able to answer anything. Don't read the Bible for knowledge. Read the Bible to, for obedience because that's exactly what Mary does. Mary knew her scripture. She was living in it. And that's when, when the angel greeted her the way he greeted her, she was blown away because she knew that God was going to use her to bring salvation to this world. Beautiful, beautiful. We have to read the scripture, but read it not for knowledge, read it for obedience. Read it so that you can grow in your obedience of him. It's the best way, and now you and I can grow so that we can affirm our identity in God. You, I've shared this, this is not the first time I've shared this, but listen, folks, if you're not gonna make this a priority in your life, you cannot overcome your family shame. And unfortunately for some of us, it's already become a curse in our marriage and in our relationship with our children. And it's awful. It's awful. And no matter how successful you become, no matter how many times people say you're great, no matter what, you're still gonna feel awful about yourself and look at yourself in the mirror and you can't stand to even take a look at yourself. It's a hard reality. You gotta create this plan to make time and space for God so that he's going to speak to you and me. So Sabbath, silence, and scripture. The second and last thing in how we overcome our family shame is by courageously living in it. You and I have to learn to courageously live into our family shame. Matthew 1, 24 to 25. When, Matthew, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. What's your family shame? 
What are the shame of your family? For some of you, you grew up in a home where your mom and dad threatened you. They said, you better not tell this to anyone. I uh, interviewed my mom recently. I had to do a a big paper for one of my classes, and it was a family, uh, sort of a a healing kind of a paper, doing like a family uh, analysis. And uh, I had 100 questions I had to ask her. Uh, Some of my staff have been doing this. I've been sending them these questions. Uh, They can ask their family. If you ever want to know more about your family, particularly if you want to see how your siblings saw your family life from their eyes, it's really amazing. But when I was interviewing my mom, it was 100 questions. And there were some real deep questions I had to ask her. And as she was sharing it, she would say to me, she goes, Peter, 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 no, 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 don't write that down. Don't write that down. No, 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 you can't put that in the paper. You cannot put that in the paper. It's the shame that she still lives with about how we grew up. That what happens is that my mother loves Jesus. She really does, but she only knows a very small fraction of the true love and mercy of God's grace. Why? Because she still lives with this family. She won't live in it. She pretends it doesn't exist when she goes to church. She puts it away and she walks in as a quote-unquote redeemed person of God when she's not, and she's still a very broken person. Likewise with me, we are all broken in that way, and we have to be willing to live in it because both Mary and Joseph, when they finally were able to live in their shame, what happened? Jesus Christ was born. Something supernatural happened when they courageously lived in their shame. When you and I can learn to courageously live in our shame, what will happen is that we will begin to experience a a, a redemption from the things that we often experience shame from, from our families. Listen, I know your family shames. You treat it as an abnormality. I know it's had an abnormal effect in your life, but you cannot hide it and continue to treat it as an abnormality. Because if you do that, then you're never going to courageously live in it, and then your family shame will continue to mutate and become a curse and destroy your life and my life and the lives of all the people that love and care for you. It just happens that way. There's no other way because the brain cannot communicate in a healthy way, causing mental illness and a lot of deep, hurtful people, a lot of deep things happen to people in a very painful, painful way. But when you and I can learn to courageously embrace it and live in it, we experience God's redemption. He breathes life into it the way Mary and Joseph did. Jesus came into life. And for some of you here today, you need a birth. You need God to birth something new in your life so that your family's shame no longer holds you captive from living the life that God wants you to live. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 28, he says this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. All things, everything that you and I have been through, God works for the good. Do you know there's even good that could be had with your family's shame, amen? There is good that could be experienced in your life with your family's shame. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, here's what Paul says. But Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There is no greater weakness than shame, Metro. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Beautiful. Why does Paul choose to live and embrace and courageously live in his weaknesses? So that Christ's power may rest in him. This abnormality of your family's shame, if you would embrace it, it will actually become supernatural. And so will you courageously live into it? How do we do it? How do we courageously live into our family's shame? There are a few suggestions that I have for you. The first one is this. We have to discreetly share it with trusted people. 
You got to discreetly share it with, not share it with everyone, but with some trusted people. You and I, we both discovered, right, especially through Kurt Thompson's book, that vulnerability is the only pathway for us to experience healing and redemption from our shame. If you cannot be vulnerable about it, if you can't share the shame that you've experienced in your family, you cannot experience healing. So discreetly, as you expose it, you'll be able to experience the healing. Otherwise, if you don't, shame begets shame and it'll begin to bleed into all of your other relations, particularly those that are really close to you. And so there are three kinds of people I think you need to share this shame with discreetly. Uh, The first is close friends, people that you trust. Share your family's shame with them. You do that for solidarity's sake, and then if somebody shares with you their shame, uh, friends, could I encourage you to be a good friend by not giving them an antidote to how to deal with that? Share your shame with them. Be in solidarity. Solidarity is one of the most beautiful things that we can receive from God when we expose the deepest family shames that we experience. The second kinds of people that you should share your family's shame with is spiritual mentors. If you have a spiritual mentor, that's the place where you should share your family's shame, right? Uh, somebody here at this church, a pastor, maybe one of the leaders in this place, you need to sit down with them and you go to them, not for solidarity's sake, you go to them so that they can give you some spiritual input to help you to head into that path of redeeming the shame. That's important. And then the third group of people that you need to be sharing the sh- your family's shame with are counselors, There's nothing wrong with going to a counselor. Some of you have been so deeply wounded by your family's shame that you really need help from a professional because pastors can't help you. Impossible. We don't have the training to help you to process those things. But a counselor can. I've been in counseling for over 10 years. And it's one of the best things I could have ever invested in because I have a lot of family shame that I've had to go through. Those are the three relationships you really need to open up to about your family's shame, all right? So that's the first. Discreetly share it with some trusted people. The second way in how we courageously live into our family shame, invite Jesus to enter our family shame. Invite him. What does that mean? That means that you are to invite Jesus to enter your deepest family wound. Many of us, we have these wounds and we still lick them like they're fresh. They're fresh wounds. We need to go back and you have, you have vivid memory of it You need to go back. When you were a kid, you didn't have the proper emotional faculties to deal with it, but you do now. And what's the story of Christmas? Who is Jesus? He's God, our Emmanuel. Do you know what Emmanuel means? God with us. God is not just with you today, but he was with you back then as well, because he's omnipresent. And so you need to go back to those deep family wounds in the back, in the past, and you need to go back to that event and picture it in your mind, and you need to find Jesus there, because he's there. And you need to find out what Jesus is doing, what he's saying to you. Because that's going to be a huge component of how you experience healing, how you courageously live into it. And many times what will begin to happen is that if you invite Jesus to do that, you'll be amazed at how the Holy Spirit will begin to speak to you about things and show you things that you totally forgot. But he'll illuminate it and it'll come into your life in a beautiful way. Why do we do this? Why do we invite Jesus into our family's shame? Because he understands your shame. Look at the story of Jesus' birth, Luke chapter two, verse four to seven. Luke chapter two, verses four to seven. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. 
She wrapped them in cloths and placed them in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This is the Prince of Peace. This is the Son of God. He didn't enter into this world in a palace or in a hospital or or in a place where there were midwives to attend to him. He was born in a barn. And the bed that he laid upon wasn't a bed, it was a bowl where livestock would eat from. Metro, that, that was all intentional. God wanted Jesus to enter into this world in the most shameful way, and Jesus also exited this world in the most shameful way. He was hung on a cross completely naked. That was the most humiliating way to be sentenced to death. Why? Because in Hebrews it says, Jesus scorned our shame. That's why. Our Jesus understands our shame because he lived into it himself. And because he understands the depth of our shame, because he is God with us and he's always present, you got to invite him to those events in your life, those fresh wounds that are deeply, deeply painful for you. And you got to ask yourself, where is Jesus? And see what he's doing and see what he's saying to you. It will be so healing when you do. That's how you courageously live into it. The last thing is fully obey Jesus. You have to learn to fully obey Jesus. Now listen, this is interesting because... Joseph and Mary, their shame came as a result of obeying God. They obeyed God. They fully obeyed him. And as a result of it, what happened? They lived in shame. Mary was 12 years old. And what I love about Mary was that she didn't go to Gabriel and say, hey, Gabe, um, like, if I do this and say yes to this, Joe is going to divorce me. And then I can't have a child out of wedlock. I mean, that's going to be tough. Like, what assurances do I have? And, you know, Gabriel would have said, hey, listen, don't worry. We already talked to Joe in a dream. He's fine. Don't worry about it. Everything will be cool. She never even asked for that kind of assurance. She just fully obeyed God. That's amazing. For her, it wasn't even an option. Even if it meant that her life would be lived in a very precarious way going forward because Joseph might leave her as a result of it, she still said, I will fully obey you. How many times has our obedience always had a contingency to it for God? Mary and Joseph both fully obeyed Jesus, fully obeyed God. And you and I need to get to a place where obedience is not an option anymore because we've created a Western Christianity and it's so scary how we've taken and diluted sort of this theology of God's grace and we use it now to take it as an option for obedience. We never obey God so that we can be accepted by him. We've already been accepted by him through Jesus Christ. And that's the beautiful part. But we obey him because he has accepted us. And as we do it, we continue. As you and I continue to obey God, we put ourselves in a place where we continue to hear his voice where he can deal with our family's shame and we can continue to live our lives as a child of God. I'm going to say this again. Obedience is not an option. It's mandatory. Now, will we fall and be disobedient? Of course. That's why there's grace. Get up and ask God to forgive you, but don't ever live your life thinking that this thing is an option. Because if it is, and you do that, God's not gonna be very powerful in your life, and you're only gonna see God in a very natural way. I think the most dreadful place to be is Christians who only see God as a natural God. That's not what the Bible says. Our God's supernatural. And the only way you experience a supernatural God is when you commit yourself to living a life of full obedience. James 1.22 says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. 
Do what it says. Our discipleship today in America is really about knowledge base. We just want to learn and read and just grow in our knowledge of God. Listen, our knowledge of God, if it doesn't translate into obedience-based discipleship, it's not real. It's not, you're not a disciple unless you translate it being an obedience-based discipleship. What you know about God and what you know about how he wants you to live your life, if we don't translate into full obedience, then we're not a disciple of God. We know, it makes it very clear, God makes it very clear, we know this, that in the Bible, premarital sex is off the table. It is. But for a lot of us, it's an option. See, it's about fully obeying. We know that we shouldn't get drunk, right? Paul says, get drunk on the Holy Spirit, not on wine. But yet, for us, it becomes an option, and we don't fully obey in those areas. I know those are extreme examples but it's important. We know we should not be gossiping. We know how powerful that tongue is, but yet we use the tongue to destroy people's lives by gossiping. Unless you and I are willing to commit ourselves. We know a lot. You, you, are, you gotta give yourself a little more credit. You know more about God than you think you do. The problem is you're not obeying. That's why you don't really know God because you only really know the power of our, the supernatural God when you truly live your life in obedience him. And that's what for, Matthew, for Joseph in Matthew 1.24, let's just go there again. I just want to read it for you. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Luke 1.38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary says. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Today, may you be able to respond on this Christmas Sunday like Joseph and Mary and say, yes, Lord, whatever it is you want, I will do my best to fully obey. So could I just ask this one question before we end? What area of your life today are you living in disobedience? Will you change that this Christmas Sunday and do whatever you can to work really hard so that you no longer live in disobedience to God anymore? Because if you want to encounter a supernatural God, it requires you to at least enter into a path where you're going to live your life the best you can to live in obedience. I grew up in a, in a family that was ridden with shame. Um, my home was full of a lot of physical abuse. My father was a, a, quite a violent man when he was drunk. My sisters and I unfortunately felt the force of his, of his drunkenness through his anger and he would physically hit us. Um, but the person who got the lion's share of that was definitely my mother. And when my father hit, he always said, you're stupid before he would hit you. Uh, there is some deep stuff from that. I didn't have a good model of how um, to be a good husband nor a good father. And um, when my wife and I, uh, 18, uh, about 18 years ago, when we were living in California, actually 19 years ago, um, we moved out there by ourselves. I was going to seminary, and uh, we got pregnant with Christina. And... Uh, when we found out she got pregnant, uh, we were joyful, but also I was terrified because I had no idea how to be a good father. And I was, I was reflective enough to realize that I'm still, a man, I'm still a boy. I'm not a man yet. And I saw even in my marriage how hard it was. And now I'm thinking, how am I going to bring up a kid? It was hard. On September 26 of 2001, she was born. And the birthing process is really amazing. That was, I mean, I was in awe of the miracle of birth. 
But as I held Christina in my arms, I was happy, but I was terrified. Because I didn't know how to be a father. And I said to myself, God, please, I don't want to mess her up. Please, I don't want her to be in a relationship with me the way my sisters are with my dad. I still remember going, getting into my car a day later after she was born. I had to go pick up my mom. My mom bought a ticket. She came out. She was going to take care of my wife and Christina. And I was on my way to LAX to pick her up in the car. And for about a, about a, about a 40 minutes drive from Pasadena, I just broke down and cried and said, God, I can't mess this up. You got to help me with this. You really have to help me with this. There was just too much of my family's shame that I had lived in that really, if, if anyone were to predict it wasn't going to end well. And um, I would say I have three kids. Out of the three, Christina probably had to deal with most of my junk. She, I think, got the worst than the other two. And so Kayla and Christian, you can thank her for that. <laughs> it wasn't easy. And uh, I did some things to hurt her as a father and as a dysfunctional one at that. But now she's 18, she's a freshman in college. And last week she gave me the greatest gift a father could ever get on Christmas. She called me out of the blue, she was still in school. And she called me and said, hey dad, I wanted to ask for your advice. And I said, okay, what's, what's the advice you need from me? She said, um, there's a guy at school that likes me. And I said, okay, what's his name and where does he live? <laughs> I'm going to get my boys to go up there and teach them a little lesson, give them a little fair warning. Uh, I, I didn't say that. I said, okay, okay, okay. And I said, well, what about you? And she said, I kind of like him too. And uh, she said, um, I just wanted to call you and ask you for your advice because he doesn't go to church and he's not a Christian. What do you think, Dad? I couldn't believe she would call me for this. I could barely contain my excitement. I had, to, I had to be chill. So I had to keep it cool. And then I just said to her, I said, honey, um, at least from my view, I said, it appears that you know, you're not the type of person that wants to just date a bunch of different guys and then pick from the, all the people you're dating. It doesn't seem like it's your way. She's like, no, definitely not. I said, you know how hard it is that if you start dating someone that's not a Christian and eventually you're gonna have to break up with them because they don't follow Jesus. You know how hard that's gonna be. And plus, you're such a sweet, compassionate girl. It's gonna be very hard. And then, you know, I started sharing a couple of different relationships that we know of people who married somebody who's not a Christian and how hard their lives are right now. I said, you don't want that to happen to you. So I said, my advice, I didn't tell her she needed to do it. I said, my advice would be that you would not even pursue it. What do you think? And she said, um, yeah, you're right, Dad. I'm gonna follow your advice. And then like, I just said to her, I said, honey, I just, I can't believe you would call me for advice about a guy. That's not typical father-daughter relationship stuff, right? I mean, she didn't even call my wife. She called me. <laughs> Peter one, Jenny zero, baby. <laughs> yeah! she would call me and I just said honey thank you that you would call me and ask for my advice on this 
And she said, Dad, why wouldn't I want your advice? Of course I want your advice. I hung up that phone. I couldn't stop talking about it with my wife. <laughs> Rub it in a little bit more. But 18 years ago, I was so afraid I was going to ruin her life because of my family's shame. And to get that phone call a week ago was the greatest statement that I have worked so hard to overcome this family's shame of mine. I have worked so hard to try to listen to God. It's not easy, I know it's hard. I have worked so hard to take a Sabbath, to try to, do th to, to rest when I know there's so many other things to do. I have tried so hard to make silence and solitude my prayer life. I have made it so hard, it's been so hard for me to read the Bible when the Bible is my job. And I have to read it for my own self to grow and to be nurtured by it. It's been so hard but it's been worth it because I've been able to hear from God. And the voices that my father used to say to me, the things that I had to endure, no longer are voices that are loud. They're very silent voices. They're still there sometimes, but I hear the voice of God speaking to me regularly. Amen. I have worked so hard in trying to courageously live into my family's shame by sharing it with you. <laughs> by sharing it with some friends with my spiritual mentors and been a counselor for over a decade. I've invited Jesus to come into the deepest, darkest wounds in my life and I've had to analyze that room and try to find where Jesus is. And sometimes it causes me to be in a place of vulnerability where I just weep for hours because I can't believe he's there. And even though I failed, even though I've disobeyed God, I've tried my best to fully obey him in every way I can. And as a result, I'm so grateful that I have a relationship with my daughter who would call me for advice about a guy. Your family's shame doesn't own you. It doesn't have to own you, Metro. But you gotta be willing to work hard. Listen to the voice of God, courageously live into your shame. And may God redeem it. And may you experience the supernatural power of God's redemption upon your life. Let's pray. And so today I want you to make a decision. The decision simply is this, that you will work hard at doing your best to listen to God and to live courageously in it, in your shame, rather than avoiding it, pretending that it doesn't exist. Could you just make that decision? He's here. Go before the Lord. Pour out your heart to him. And I'm going to close this in prayer.
God, I pray for everyone in this room, everyone in the gym, sanctuary, everyone in the nursery and those watching online. I pray right now, God, that you would speak to them and allow them to hear your voice so they can know that they are a child of God. I pray you give them a desire to want to hear your voice. So help them to silence their souls so they can hear from you. I pray you give my brothers and sisters the amazing courage, those who've committed themselves to wanting to go full on this so they no longer allow their family shame to destroy their marriage, their relationship with their boyfriend or girlfriend or their relationship with their friends or other family members. God, I pray you give them the amazing tenacity to endure even in the midst of failure, that they would just keep pushing forward in their lives. So God, would you just be with these beautiful people that is Metro Community Church. Pour out your favor and your blessing upon them, reminding them that Christmas is a reminder that you went into into this world in the most shameful way possible so that you can eventually take away and redeem our shame. And may you do so in our lives. Thank you, God, that this is a journey. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. So teach us to be patient, forgiving of ourselves when we fail, but help us to get back up and never get discouraged by our failures. But be more encouraged because we know that you are still with us. That every morning, your mercies are new for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. There's some next steps that God, I believe, is going to encourage you to take. The first one is this. I'm committing my life to Jesus for the very first time. If you've never done that, please just check that off. And then uh, directly after the service, go to the next table. That's the new believers table. And um, grab a new believers packet. One of our leaders will be there to pray for you or with you. Second, I will create a listening plan for God to speak to me and share it for accountability. You need to create a listening plan. So create that and uh, share it with somebody for account. Tell them what you're going to do. How are you going to be listening to God? All right. Third, I will read Soul Care by Rob Reamer. Uh, we sold the book last week. Many of you have it. Make a commitment uh, during this season to read this book. It will impact your life. Talk about healing your soul, dealing with shame. The book is just littered with all great nuggets of wisdom and how you can get through that. All right. So please read the book. You can order it on Amazon. All right. Uh, fourth, I will give to the Christmas offering. It's an opportunity for you to give and bless people, not in this church, but outside of this church. And so please, if you brought it with you, fantastic. But if not, can I encourage you to think and pray about giving generously to it? Because we do need your help to reach our goal of 170, I think it's $2,000. All right. And then lastly, please sign me up to the Connections Dinner on January 19th to learn more about this church. It's for fellowship, but also for you to learn a little bit more about Metro Community Church. If you've just been attending for a little while and you'd like to know a little bit more about us, love to invite you to my home on the 19th at 4 p.m.